Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Manya Brashear-Pashman. Eitan Bernath is a celebrity chef, entertainer, author, social media influencer, television personality, and entrepreneur, with a following of 7 million across his social media accounts. He is the principal culinary contributor for The Drew Barrymore Show on CBS, and earlier this year, he was named to the Forbes list of 30 under 30 for food and drink. But here's the thing. The list could have been called 20 under 20. When he turned 20 in April of this year, he was already CEO of his own multi-million dollar company, Aton Productions, and his first cookbook was about to hit stores, Aton Eats the World. Ahead of Thanksgiving, Aton is with us now to talk about how he hopes to use his role as an influencer to fight anti-Semitism and why he feels it is so important for young people, Jews and non-Jews alike, to be involved in that fight and the fight to save our democracy. Aton, welcome to People of the Pod. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So you grew up in New Jersey, which is where I live now, and I watched your TikTok video on the day the FBI warned synagogues a few weeks ago that there was a credible threat. You immediately called your family, and I'd like to talk to you about what you said to them. Yeah, so I was actually on my way to school. I take a class at Columbia, and I was on the way to school. I happened to have been driving, actually, that day. And I got a text from my roommate, Noah, of a link to the Twitter post from the FBI. And I was at a stoplight, and I read it, and I instantly burst out into tears, just was overcome with emotions. Obviously, you know anti-Semitism's out there. There's not a day that goes by that there aren't people who are spewing anti-Semitism around the world. But the FBI doesn't just casually alert a massive group of people that there's a threat towards them. And so, you know, immediately I took that very seriously. And my dad does a lot of work with this shul that we go to the synagogue that my parents go to in Jersey. My mom works at a Jewish high school. My brother goes to a Jewish high school. And I immediately called my family. And, you know, I spoke about in the video I released online that, you know, I said something like, please don't go to shul this week. Please just stay away for right now. And something I got a lot of responses to, which I actually think is totally valid, is people are like, no, they should go. They should go out there. That's what they want. And I honestly agree with that. I think, you know, the gut reaction I had of being terrified for my family and not wanting them to go is valid. And I'm sure a lot of people felt that way. But at the same time, It is true. You know, the goal of people who commit anti-Semitic attacks or any type of hate crime is to suppress that group of people. And so by hiding at home, you're kind of giving in to what they want. It's a hard dichotomy to balance. My children were celebrating their consecration into religious school that week, and we faced the same dilemma. I mean, do we go? My husband and I had to discuss it, whether or not it was the smart thing to do. And if we didn't go, how are we going to explain that to our children? It is a dilemma that no one should have to face when they're deciding whether to go to their house of worship. But so many people do wrestle with that. So I'm curious, what kind of message did you want to send that day? And what kind of message do you want to send now? Yeah. So when I took that video, I had just gone to Jersey after my class, and I was just still so overcome with emotions. And 
that tweet from the FBI came right after a week where there had been a lot of dialogue about Kanye West, just anti-Semitic rhetoric and beyond that he was spewing. And I talked on the video that I hated having to talk about him. You know, I wish that we could not care about Kanye West being anti-Semitic. And something I said in that video is there is no Jewish person who is offended that Kanye West is anti-Semitic. Our feelings aren't hurt. We care because his words have consequences. If you go all the way back to Europe before the Holocaust, the Holocaust did not start in the gas chambers. The Holocaust started with anti-Semitic conspiracies, anti-Semitic rhetoric being normalized, And the reason why those words matter so much is because they normalize it. You know, anti-Semitism lives out there. Everyone who's Jewish always knows there's people, whether it's on social media, in real life, not social media is real life, you know what I mean, physically, uh, (laughs) who who spew anti-Semitism. However, a prominent figure in entertainment and in the media just loudly and prouding spewing anti-Semitism has serious consequences for it being normalized. What's crazy about anti-Semitism, what makes it so unique, is it can be molded into whatever people want it to be. When we're poor, we're the vermin of society that is sucking the resources. And when we're more wealthy, we're magically controlling the world. I want to talk about television and the impact of television. The Drew Barrymore Show is certainly not your first rodeo. You were on Guy Fieri's Grocery Games. You were on Chopped at the age of 12. You have said one of your long-term goals is to host Saturday Night Live. So what is your take on Dave Chappelle's monologue from this past weekend? Yeah, so... Hosting Saturday Night Live, ever since I can remember, has been one of my biggest life goals. Kind of my two really big life goals are hosting Saturday Night Live and attending the Met Gala. And I wasn't up to watch the—I usually watch Saturday Night Live on YouTube because I do not stay up that late. I'm in bed. I'm an old man. I like to go to bed with my pets (laughs) early. But I I read about it the next day and watched it. And what— appalled me the most was less that he said it and more that Saturday Night Live gave him the platform to say it. You know, unfortunately, he's a comedian who has crossed the line quite a lot against a wide array of communities. He's not new to, you know, teetering up that line of like, what's comedy versus what is too far. And, you know, he made a mockery, in a sense, out of anti-Semitism. You know, he got up on stage, he read off uh, apology, saying, you know, I denounce anti-Semitism in all forms, and then makes a joke and says, see, Kanye, that's what you should have done to buy you more time, as if buying more time from accountability against anti-Semitism is a good thing. And then he used his time to spew the same anti-Semitism that Kanye has been spewing, you know, saying that there's too many Jews in Hollywood. And what's so ironic about that, which is, you know, goes to the tune of, you know, anti-Semitism of the centuries, is why are there so many Jews in Hollywood? Because we were not allowed to work in other parts of the economy. You know, that was a part that we were allowed to work in. You know, when Jews entered the United States workforce, we were actively not allowed to work in many industries. But entertainment was an industry we were allowed to work in. And so now that there are a lot of Jews in entertainment and a lot of successful Jews in entertainment, we suddenly now control it and are at fault. There's an apathy to any historical context as to why there are a lot of Jews in Hollywood. And 
I read a fascinating thread of tweets, I don't recall who it was from, that said, let's just play out this concept that Jews control Hollywood. What does that mean? What is our goal? What does that mean? It's also just so outlandish. It's extremely illogical. You talked about historical context. Not many 20-year-olds have a lot of historical context and know some of that background. I'm curious where you got your foundation in Jewish history and some of these topics that we're talking about. Yeah, so I attended Yavne Academy and the first school, and we had great Jewish studies classes and education, and I definitely feel like I learned a lot from there. I also very much feel a responsibility just as a public figure who's Jewish to do my work and, you know, be someone who can accurately and elegantly talk about this issue because, you know, I'm very aware that people in the Jewish community look to me to make statements when certain things happen. My name's Eitan. I'm very obviously Jewish. Whether it's a Jewish story work around my neck or just my name, I know that when someone's watching one of my videos, I am very possibly one of the only Jewish people they know. You know, when we live in, you know, New York and New Jersey, it's very easy to forget that most people in the world have never met a Jewish person. And, you know, my videos that I, you know, last year in 2021, my videos reached 350 million people. Probably like way more than half, if not the overall majority of those people, have probably never met a Jewish person in their life. And so I take that with a lot of responsibility. I think that, you know, context is so important. You know, I've always been a very, you know, politically engaged person. I'm very openly political on all my social channels. You know, I get lots of people like, oh, why are you being political? You're going to lose followers. I don't care. I never said other people can have their own political beliefs, but I'm very firm in my beliefs. I've always been since I was a little kid. And you know, it's my platform. If you don't like it, you don't have to follow. So you mentioned your Star of David necklace, which you are wearing now in our studio. Why do you wear it and why has it become kind of a standard accessory for you? Yeah, so I wear my Jewish Star necklace. I have two different ones that I wear. One's gold-colored and one's silver-colored, depending on the outfit. And I wear them because, you know, I think it's so important to be loud and proud as a Jew. You know, I'm never trying to hide that I'm Jewish. I truly believe every time I'm in front of a camera, I have an opportunity to be a good example of what a Jew is. You know, a Jew is someone who's engaged in the world, who cares about the world, who cares about other people, who is a productive member of society. You know, one of our values is to be, you know, an or legoyim, a light onto the nations. And I truly believe that, you know, for me, what's just, you know, a little piece of jewelry, you know, can make Jewish people watching feel represented and also show people who aren't Jewish watching, oh, that's a Jew. Um, well, in a good way, that could sound that could sound bad. <laughs> if I was in the subway and someone goes, oh, that's a Jew, I'd be a little scared. Uh, but, you know, in a good way. I think that that's, it's important to, you know, be loud and proud about it. So where else have you worn it? So I've talked about this before, and then so I was like, well, you didn't wear it on this one Drew appearance. <laughs> um, obviously, sometimes, actually, it was funny. I recently went to some Jewish event where I was like, it was like all about being Jewish. And I literally forgot my Star of David necklace because I was rushing to the event. And I was like, wow, I forgot it. I look really stupid right now. <laughs> uh, but I make it ever to wear it in all TV appearances I do, live events. I don't wear it usually in my cooking videos just because I don't like to wear jewelry while I'm cooking or when I'm like in my house or not a house. I live in New York City. Apartment. Home, if you will. I wear it anytime I'm doing a public engagement. Am I right that you wore it to the White House last yes. year? And that's how you scored an invite to the Hanukkah party the next night. 
Yes. So I was at a last December, I was at the unveiling of the holiday decorations. The first lady of every presidency decorates the White House for the holiday season. And they usually do an unveiling with a major news organization. But this year, you know, to be with the Times, they had a bunch of social media creators come to do that unveiling as a way to, you know, connect with the people in a unique way that's really with the Times. So I received an invite from the First Lady's team to attend that, and me and a bunch of creators went there, and we got a whole tour, and we kind of documented it. And towards the end, my contact, who I know at the White House, introduced me to one of Jill Biden's aides, and we were talking, and somehow me being Jewish came up with my Jewish star. I think I like maybe made a joke that there was a lot more Christmas decorations than Jewish decorations, <laughs> which is understandable. You know, the president isn't Jewish. And I made a joke along with that. And I was like, oh, like if you ever do a Hanukkah event, I would love to go. And he looks at me and he goes, oh, we're having one tomorrow night. Do you want to come? And I burst off. And I was like, oh, ha, ha, And he's like, no, 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 I'm serious. Like, do you want to come? And I was like, uh, let me check my schedule. Yes. <laughs> and long story short, the next morning I actually had a shoot back in New York. So I flew right after that event back to New York. That morning I do my shoot. I am awaiting the clearance from the Secret Service because you can't just casually go to the White House. They, like, I don't know, stalk your phone and probably and stuff like that. Who knows? And I do my shoot. You mentioned earlier about Forbes 30 Under 30. That morning I found out that I was named one of Forbes 30 Under 30 as I was rushing to the airport to fly back to D.C. to go back to the White House for the Hanukkah event. It was truly the most magical night of my life. I cannot explain the Jewish pride I felt was just beaming out of my body. So I show up, and basically it's not an entertainer event. It is an event for Jewish politicians in Congress and rabbis that are close with the administration throughout all the different presidencies. I was the only entertainer at the event and the youngest person at the event. So I show up, and we're waiting on this line outside the White House grounds, and it's just rabbis and Congress people, which was a very eclectic group, and me. So everyone there thought that I was like a son of one of the rabbis or Congress people and was like, oh, why are you here? Or they thought I was like an intern for the White House. I was like, no, no, like I'm a content creator. And they're like, respectfully, why are you here? You're, you don't look like a rabbi, which is fair. But we get in and it was truly magical. You know, walking into the White House and the presidential orchestra was playing Hava Nagila and all the different classic Jewish songs it was emotional. To be honest, we all had to wear masks because it was during a part of the pandemic when transmission levels were much higher. And it was a gross situation. My mask was full of tears and moisture. It was a little gross, but it was just so emotional. You know, we sat down and they started doing the lighting ceremony where, you know, the president, the vice president, the first lady, the second gentleman were all on stage with some other Jewish congressmen and women and some rabbis. And we were all singing the brachot for lighting the menorah and, and the songs. And it was just magical. You felt the room just like vibrating with the songs. And, you know, to end off a year where, you know, it was in 2021 where there was such a rise in anti-Semitic incidents to, you know, be in the White House, loud and proudly Jewish, celebrating this holiday that we've been celebrating for thousands of years that really is a story of fighting anti-Semitism was just magical with the most powerful two people in the country, arguably the world, in the most powerful building in the country, arguably the world, was a magical moment. I mean, you mentioned that the president is not Jewish, but the second gentleman yes. is Jewish. And in fact, you interviewed Doug Hemhoff recently. 
And he said something very interesting in that interview. He said that he was so focused on being the first male spouse to a president or vice president, more so than being the first Jewish spouse. But in fact, they're both a pretty big deal. Have you found that your Jewish identity is a bigger deal than you expected? Yeah. So he talked about that in an interview and that he didn't anticipate how important that would be. And what's funny to hear that from him on the flip side, the second I heard that, for me, that meant so much. Obviously, you know, it was historic that he's the first male spouse, as you mentioned, of a president or vice president, but the first Jewish spouse. And, you know, for me, the second that I found out about that, that was very exciting to me. So it was really interesting hearing it from his side, how, you know, it kind of took a little time for him to realize that. Because, you know, when he talks about like, oh, I didn't realize how big of a deal that was for people, like, I am people. That was a big deal for me. (laughs) On the flip side, for myself, I'm 20 now. I've been working in entertainment since I was 12 years old. I think at the very beginning, maybe I didn't realize. But to be honest, pretty quickly I did. Unfortunately, you know, there's a lot of anti-Semitism out there. And so it came pretty quickly. I think that... Once I moved out of my parents' house into the city and I wasn't attending a Jewish school anymore because I graduated high school, I think that's when I realized a bit more of the importance of actively, loudly, constantly talking about being Jewish. I wouldn't say constantly, but you know what I mean, an appropriate degree. Talking about being Jewish and, you know, combating anti-Semitism because I think, you know, when I lived at home, you know, going to a Jewish school and all that, you kind of get lost in your own bubble and, you know, now that I don't go to a Jewish school anymore because I go to Columbia, it, I think, just opened my eyes a bit more. You know, once I wasn't surrounded constantly by a supportive—I still am. Like, I have tons of great Jewish friends. I love going to the Chabad downtown. But, like, it's just different. And I think that that opened my eyes a bit more to how important that is. You talked about the rise of anti-Semitism in 2021 and how the Hanukkah party kind of capped—it was a capstone for the year, and it was it was a, a relief— And I presume that you're talking about the rise of anti-Semitism, especially after the conflict between Israel and Gaza, Hamas and Gaza, in May of 2021. Did you see a spike in comments or anti-Semitism on your site or personally, physically? Did you encounter anti-Semitism around that time? I think all Jews know, you know, whenever there's a conflict in Israel, it's like, oh boy, obviously, you know, there's different parts. So when that happened, actually, a lot, a lot of my close friends were in Israel studying at yeshiva. And so on a personal level, it was deeply upsetting. You know, there were many nights where I, like, was, you know, calling my friends really upset. And it's one of these things that in America, it's like sounds way worse a lot than it usually is. You know, I would call my friends, like, I'd be crying. And I'd call my friends, like, are you okay? And they're like, oh, yeah, I'm just, like, chilling in the shelter. I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm, like, over here, like, crying. That was fascinating about it. So on a personal level, I feel like it was just a very scary time. There were a lot of people I, you know, obviously, aside from just the Jewish community as a whole that lives there, but a lot of personal people I love and care about who were in the middle of the conflict. And then publicly, there was definitely a large uptick. You know, something that's so tragically unique about Israel is that I don't even want to say supporting Israel, acknowledging the existence of Israel and supporting it is directly equated to this concept of that you support every single action every single IDF soldier's ever done, every single action the government's ever done, every single thing that Israel as a country has ever done. And it's this, it's mind-blowing because, you know, I live in the United States of America. I'm grateful to live here. I support the United States of America. I don't support, I would say more than not, 
of different policies and politicians in the U.S. We're a deeply divided country. Furthermore, someone, for example, who is Chinese living in the U.S., if they post something about their relatives in China, no one's commenting like, F you, the Chinese government's horrible, they're doing all this to the Uyghurs. No, like, that's not their responsibility. They can support the Chinese people and the country of China, full stop. There's this horrid, you know, thing in circles about Israel that people feel they have the ability to just not, you know, I, uh, one of the most common anti-Israel comments I get is, what's Israel? That doesn't exist. Which, first off, it's like, look at a map. It, it exists. Go to Google Maps, type in Israel, you'll find it. It's very strange. Let's switch to a lighter topic, shall we? Yes. <laughs> Thanksgiving. It's next week. And let's talk about food. Who is doing the cooking for your Thanksgiving meal and what will be on the table? So actually, growing up, my mom's cousin is a chef. And it's just always been the tradition since before I even started cooking that we would go to her side of the family for Thanksgiving. So I never, we never really cooked Thanksgiving. We kind of just showed up for Thanksgiving. But as I started to get older, I would, you know, come a little earlier, help him cook. I eventually then would sometimes bring food that I would cook. So then during COVID, actually, was the first time that I cooked Thanksgiving. So it was just me and my immediate family. And that was a really cool experience. We happened to, like, not really like turkey that much. So we didn't really have a turkey. I, what do you have instead? A chicken. Okay. Which I know is a little sacrilegious, but that's what we do. <laughs> if we made a turkey, no one would eat it. And this year, I believe it's the first year... Because during the first year of COVID, we actually, the first Thanksgiving, I think, during COVID, we like literally just my immediate family, we just made a sign. But the second Thanksgiving into it, we did an outdoor social distance Thanksgiving with my grandmas, where we literally set up lawn chairs on the backyard, all 15 feet away from each other, and just ate and talked, like kind of yelled towards each other. <laughs> this year is the first year we're all getting like the whole family back together. I'm really excited. And I think we're doing potluck, which is exciting. So I believe I am contributing um, an apple pie. That's what I've currently committed to. I will make whatever I am told to make other than that. So do you favor classic or creative recipes for Thanksgiving? I I think classic, other than turkey. So here's the thing. I like the classic. I love stuffing. I think we should eat stuffing around the year. I don't know why we only do it once a year. I love stuffing. I love mashed potatoes. We do do it all year long in my household. Oh, so. <laughs> good. I should do that. I should take that on. I love stuffing. I love mashed potatoes, mm -hmm. which I know is not only a Thanksgiving thing. But... I'm not a vegetarian, but I'm not a big carnivore. So I always make a lot of vegetarian options for Thanksgiving. Like last year, I did like a really great vegetarian Wellington. I like classic flavors in different ways. So creative, yeah. Okay. Basically, second choice. What about cranberry sauce? Do you do fresh cranberries or do you do the cylinder with the ridges fresh. from the tin can still? Oh, okay. That scares me a little bit. <laughs> um, actually, I have a recipe that I'm releasing the day after Thanksgiving that is a recipe for a dessert you can make with leftover cranberry sauce. Because mm. I feel like everyone always has extra cranberry sauce and it's a tart recipe that uses that so that it doesn't go to waste. Because nice. I feel like after Thanksgiving, usually people are like, oh. Had enough of that. But it's a new exciting way to use it up. What about Hanukkah? When it comes to latkes and donuts, do you like classic or creative recipes? I think creative, definitely. I have a recipe on my website that's a tahini glazed donut that is topped with stringy halva. 
don't know if you ever had that before. It's like a, it's a halva that's a bit more spun. It's like stringy. It's really good. I love doing creative types of sufgani yot. I also, one of my favorite type of lock actually, I love potato. No hate. But I love Brussels sprout lakas. I'm willing to try that. It has a miso glaze. It's on atambernat.com. Little plug. They are delicious. My dad actually makes the lakas in the family. So I never make lakas because my dad doesn't do that much cooking. He has a few things he makes and he does them very well. And when he does them, no one else does them because it's like dad's thing. Aton's book is called Aton Eats the World, and this holiday season, he and his publisher are giving away a limited supply of free copies to social justice organizations across the country. We will include in our show notes how to take advantage of that offer. Aton, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This was an incredible discussion. I really appreciate you having me on. If you missed last week's episode, tune in for my conversations with Israeli journalist Lahav Harkov and American journalist Mark Rod, each analyzing the results of the recent Israeli and American elections. And in honor of Mizrahi Heritage Month, be sure to listen to and share AJC's The Forgotten Exodus, the first ever narrative podcast series devoted to telling the often forgotten stories of Jews from Arab lands and Iran. You can find it at AJC.org slash The Forgotten Exodus. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at AJC.org slash People of the Pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at AJC.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, and hop on to Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod. 